Exodus chapter 16, verses 12 to 21 and verse 31. I have heard the complaining of the Israelites. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a fine flaky substance, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, what is it? for they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each of you needs, an omer to a person according to the number of persons, all providing for those in their own tents. The Israelites did so, some gathering more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, those who gathered much had nothing over, and those who gathered little had no shortage. They gathered as much as each of them needed. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it until the morning, and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, as much as each needed. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. The house of Israel called it manna. It was like coriander seed, white. And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Amen. Um, yeah, so we're into um, a a short series uh, which is going to take us through to early September looking at social justice issues and one of the uh, one of the things that emerged last year as we were doing our, our kind of vision statements at Bloomsbury was that there is this strong concern for social justice and there are a number of areas that Bloomsbury has historically been involved with and others that we're, we're getting more involved with uh, many often through partner organizations such as London Citizens so uh, the reason I'm looking at issues around economic justice this morning is because a number of us, uh, where some of whom are on the panel and can perhaps speak a little bit more to this later, uh, attended a, a session that had all been organised through uh, London citizens and somebody who was involved there, looking at ways of dealing with um, justice issues around benefits payments and whether there was a more creative way of dealing with that. And this is where this question of universal basic income came from. And the question that stuck in my mind in all of this was whether there was 
a kind of a Christian case to be made for rethinking the way in which um, the benefit system is implemented. So I'm just kind of floating this this morning to whet your appetites and, and, and give you a way into it. But um, when, when we went to this session, I posted a link about uh, the universal basic income on my social media stream. And a friend of mine, who I respect, came back to me with a very interesting response. Uh, they said that they're not sure that UBI, Universal Basic Income, is biblical. Their point was that the human experience of God's provision should be matched by a corresponding expectation that the biblical injunction to stewardship negates an economy based on the free gift of money. In other words, you don't get nothing for nothing in a biblical worldview. And this approach certainly has a long tradition within Western Christianity and indeed Western society that has been shaped by Christianity. And uh, the influence particularly of the Protestant work ethic is thoroughly embedded in our collective consciousness with its emphasis on hard work and discipline and frugality as kind of Christian virtues. The German economic philosopher Max Weber, who uh, is the person who coined the phrase Protestant work ethic in the early years of the 20th century, he traced the origins of European capitalism to the Protestant Reformation. In other words, capitalism is an outworking of Protestant faith. He saw uh, the break from Christendom as uh, that moment which enshrined in the popular mindset, uh, a religious mandate for secular labour, as people were expected to quite literally work out their salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, if you're going to be a good Christian, you are expected to work for the good of society and to care for your family. Well, comments from a number of sources within mainstream denominations including uh, the Baptists, have suggested that my friend is not alone. And it does seem that there is a substantial suspicion about whether this idea of a universal basic income is actually something that can even be supported from a Christian or biblical perspective. Many Christians find themselves instinctively reacting against the idea that people who've done nothing to deserve it might end up getting something for nothing. So I thought it would be interesting this week, in the first of this short series looking at justice issues, to explore a biblical model that might support the concept of universal basic income. And I want to offer a couple of key concepts for our consideration. So on the one hand, we have the wilderness experience of the Israelites as they fled slavery in Egypt on their way to the promised land, which we just had Philip read for us. And on the other hand, we have some words that Jesus spoke, which I'll come to you shortly. Um, but Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. The Lord your God humbled you by letting you hunger, then by feeding you with manna, in order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So within the, uh, within the Old Testament tradition, we've got the story of the Exodus and the story of the manna from the book of Exodus. And then you've got this reflection on it in the book of Deuteronomy. They were fed daily in order to understand that one does not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And of course, that phrase from Deuteronomy is quoted by Jesus in his temptation. So Matthew chapter four. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So you can see, can't you, how the temptation story is shot through with resonances of the wilderness experience. They're both set in the wilderness. In the 40 years wandering in the wilderness that Israel had becomes 40 days and 40 nights for Jesus. The stones on the ground becoming bread to sustain you is a clear echo of the manna and except Jesus resists temptation by quoting from Deuteronomy. Then, fast forwarding a couple of chapters on in Matthew's Gospel, we get to Jesus introducing the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. The daily reality for many people in our country is that the prayer for daily bread has a level of anxiety to it that is easily lost on those who have enough resources in hand to feed ourselves for the foreseeable future. The prayer for daily bread is not easily a middle-class prayer. However, for many of those in the first century Palestine to whom Jesus first taught this prayer, uncertainty about their future ability to feed themselves was a part of their day-by-day -day existence. In the first century, it was only the rich and the wealthy whose future was assured. For everyone else, the only certainties were death and Roman taxes. The first century had no welfare state, no minimum wage, certainly no living wage. There was no trades union movement. There were no standardized terms and conditions of employment. If you got ill or lost your job, the step from feeding your family to destitution was startlingly small for many of the people who Jesus was speaking to in the first century. And it was to disciples facing uncertain futures that Jesus taught the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. There is an urgent simplicity to it when it's heard in a subsistence context. So I find myself wondering if this might be where it's first challenged to us in all the complexities of our Western capitalist lives might come from. Because we too live in a society of huge disparities of income and security. Some of us struggle to not eat too much, whilst others struggle to know where the next meal is coming from. Some of us struggle to know how to wisely invest resources, rightly asking ethical questions of our bankers and our pension funds, but others don't even have enough income for today's needs, let alone the needs of an imagined future retirement. So what, I wonder, might the stark simplicity of a prayer for daily bread say to a world where investment banks and food banks sit side by side? There are 
tens of thousands of people going to food banks for handouts for their daily bread. Well, to me, it says something has gone wrong. Unchecked and unchallenged, global capitalism causes vast suffering across the world and colludes in ecological destruction on an unprecedented scale. And we'll be looking at environmental issues uh, next week. I want to suggest that the challenge to these spirals of misery and destruction lie right here in this little verse from the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. If people, if we can learn to focus not on what can be acquired, but simply on what is needed. We hear from Jesus here a revolutionary concept, which is in effect the antidote to individualism. What if we were to decide personally and communally that enough is just that, it's enough? What if we rejected the idea that ever increasing acquisitions of resources is not an endless quest never reaching a conclusion? Well, firstly, the capacity here is then to release resources for others. And secondly, we can also begin to find release ourselves from the continual pressure to acquire wealth, status and success. If we ask for and receive our daily bread, then we have enough for today. You see, Jesus is disconcertingly ambivalent about tomorrow. Luke chapter 12, verses 29 to 31. Do not keep striving for what you're to eat and what you're to drink, and do not keep worrying, for it is the nations of the world that strive after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, strive for his kingdom, and all these things will be given to you as well. This was the lesson that the Israelites of ancient times had to learn in the story of the manna in the wilderness, which is clearly in the background to Jesus' words in his prayer. If they collected too much and tried to keep more than they needed, it went rotten by the next day, except on the sixth day when they had to collect enough for two days so they could rest from their labour on the seventh day. So what if, rather than worrying about the question of what this mysterious manna actually was, we simply took this ancient story at its face value as a kind of parable of idealised economics? Here we have a story which speaks of simple living, where enough is enough, where unnecessary accumulation is pointless, where rest is sanctified, and where people can be content and stop complaining about their lot in life because they simply have enough. The question of what we think we're asking for when we pray our prayer for daily bread is of course an important one. Is it for us just a prayer for food? Or is it also a prayer for shelter and warmth and security and love and self-determination and mobility and a car? Maybe if you're a certain kind of American evangelist, your prayer for daily bread includes praying for a private jet. Where do we draw the line? Where is enough for us? Where is enough in your life for you? Studies have shown that there comes a point, and it is lower than you would think, beyond which additional wealth does not lead to additional happiness. It is fairly clear that poverty correlates with a certain level of unhappiness. But 
when you've got enough, more doesn't necessarily make you more happy. The temptation to excess is ever before us, just as it was before Jesus in his own experience in the wilderness. He didn't wake up every morning of his 40-day Lenten fast in the desert to find fresh manna waiting for him. He starved for 40 days. And then he was tempted to use his divine power to command stones to become bread for him to eat. And in his reply to the tempter, he quoted the words from Deuteronomy that we heard earlier, originally written as this reflection on the Israelite experience of 40 years wandering in the wilderness, sustained by the daily bread of heaven. And this passage, Jesus quotes, tells us that the lesson of the manna from heaven is not that God will meet all of your needs and gift you a life of luxury, but rather it is that the abundant life that God gives is not found in the abundance of a person's possession or even in the abundance of the food they consume. Abundant life is found in obedience to every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the discipline of praying each day for daily bread is not some ritual to get God to give us what we think we need. That kind of prayer uh, has more in common with magical incantations than it does with the articulations of the longings of a humble heart. No, the prayer for daily bread echoes the reasons the Israelites gathered manna. It's about learning obedience to God who guides us into works of goodness, humility and charity. The prayer for daily bread, you see, is not about me or even us, lest we think God especially favours us by answering our cry for food. Rather, the prayer for daily bread is a prayer that takes us into solidarity with those who lack. It's a prayer that drives us to action to see the hungry fed, the poor raised up and the impoverished released from the snares of debt. The prayer for daily bread takes us into good works of transformative action. It certainly did for the early Christians, as the book of James makes clear. Uh, James chapter 2, if a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs. What's the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Similarly, in the book of Acts, we read, now during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Greeks complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And I find myself wondering, in our complex, interconnected, globalised capitalist world, what the good works that James speaks of might look like for us? What does feeding the hungry look like for us? What would it look like if our commitment to good works led us, for example, into a commitment to good work? where we became advocates for good employment practices, ensuring people are paid a fair living wage, that they receive paid holidays, sickness benefits and maternity cover. Many, particularly in the gig economy, do not have such things in our country. What would it look like for our prayer for daily bread to include a commitment to alleviating food poverty? 
And so we come back to this idea of universal basic income. As an alternative to the current cruelties of our social security system, a universal basic income would mean that every individual would receive sufficient to live with dignity. And they would receive this as a gift of grace, given unconditionally. The hungry in our city are not primarily those we see sometimes begging on the streets. These may be the most visible, but they are just the tip of a much larger iceberg. The vast majority of those who are malnourished in London starve behind closed doors, and they include the young and the elderly, parents skipping meals so that their children can eat. And I wonder, what does a prayer for daily bread mean for them? How might we be part of the answer to that prayer? The first Lord's Supper was a celebration of the Passover meal. The story of the manna was there before the disciples in that evening in the upper room. And Jesus, whilst they were eating, took a loaf of bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. Elsewhere in John's Gospel, we read that Jesus described himself as the bread of life, saying whoever comes to him will never be hungry. And in Paul's story of the Lord's Supper, in his letter to the Corinthians, he recalls Jesus as saying, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Our Christian existence is shot through with the monthly celebration of the communion meal. And when we share it, we need to know that it, this bread and this wine is a meal of sharing. It's a meal of accountability, a meal of sacrifice, a meal of abundance, a meal of life. And as the body of Christ share bread, we find the answer to our prayer for daily bread taking shape in our lives and in our midst. Because it's as we share the bread of Christ's broken body that we discover together what it is to be obedient to every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is as we eat bread together that we find ourselves motivated to good works in our world, to share with those who have less than we do, to lift up those who are weighed down by poverty, and to offer all that we have to the service of the one who calls us to newness of life. This is why I've been so glad that we've been able to keep celebrating communion during lockdown with our monthly communion services, because it is as we break bread and eat together that we continually discover the answer to the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Amen. I'd now like to ask Helen to come and give us a reading. Thank you. Morning, everyone. Um, this is an extract from a book called Utopia for Realists um, by Rudka Bregman, and it's published by Bloomsbury Publishing, and I'm reading the Kindle edition, pages 25 to 27. Apologies why I don't look at the screen, because I'll just be reading. Okay, this is called A London Experiment. In 2009, an experiment was underway. It subjects 13 homeless men. They are veterans of the streets. Some have been sleeping on the cold pavement of the Square Mile, Europe's financial centre, for going on 40 years. Between the police expenses, court costs, 
and social services, these 13 troublemakers have racked up a bill estimated at £400,000, $650,000 or more per year. The strain on city services and local charities is too great for things to go on this way. So, Broadway, a London-based aid organisation, makes a radical decision. From now on, the city's 13 consummate drifters will be getting VIP treatment. Is adios to the daily helpings of food stamps, soup kitchens and shelters. They're getting a drastic and instantaneous bailout. From now on, these rough sleepers will receive free money. To be exact, they're getting £3,000 in spending money and they don't have to do a thing in return. How they spend it is up to them. They can opt to make use of an advisor if they'd like or not. There are no strings attached, no questions to trip them up. The only thing they're asked is, what do you think you need? I didn't have enormous expectations, one social worker later recalled, but the drifters' desires proved eminently modest. A telephone, a dictionary, a hearing aid, each had his own ideas about what he needed. In fact, most were downright thrifty. After one year, they had each spent an average of just £800. Take Simon, who had been strung out on heroin for 20 years. The money turned his life around. Simon got clean and started taking gardening classes. For some reason, for the first time in my life, everything just clicked, he said later. I'm starting to look after myself, wash and shave. Now I'm thinking of going back home. I've got two kids. A year and a half after the experiment began, seven of the 13 rough sleepers had a roof over their heads. Two more were about to move into their own apartments. All 13 had taken critical steps towards solvency and personal growth. They were enrolled in classes, learning to cook, going through rehab, visiting their families and making plans for the future. It empowers people, one of the social workers said about the personalised budget. It gives choices. I think it can make a difference. After decades of fruitless pushing, pulling, pampering, penalising, prosecuting and protecting, nine notorious vagrants had finally been brought in from the streets. The cost? £50,000 a year, including the social workers' wages. In other words, not only did the project help 13 people, it also cut costs considerably. Even The Economist magazine had to conclude that the most efficient way to spend money on the homeless might be to give it to them. Thank you, Helen. <clears throat> so we've had a few comments in the chat function. Um, I'd like to invite all the panelists for today to unmute their microphones and put their videos on. I'd say to start with, I think the thing that, well, one of the things that struck me from what Simon said um, was that this, this whole uh, situation has two sides to it. One is thinking about ourselves and our needs versus our wants, and the other is thinking about our attitudes towards other people and their needs and their wants. And I guess we can have rather different answers to the question depending upon which one we're thinking of ourselves or others, and uh, whether we're being uh, generous or not. Um, so does anyone on the panel 
want to uh, kick off with uh, any any observations or reflections they have on today's topic. No pressure on anyone. I can keep chattering. <laughs> so right. I'll kick in since I've been posting a lot. Um, this 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 business about daily bread and the emphasis on essential survival econ economics um, seems to me to detract from the reaching for the kingdom of God that is at hand. So the concentration on today should not take away from the concentration on tomorrow and the day after and the creation of a world which is better than the current one. That's what we should be working around. And there's, there's this aspect of grace. Uh, traditional Christianity would see God as external and um, our experience of God as grace. It's given to us for free. Um, if we have a God who is incarnate, i.e. you can't separate man from God, then we have a responsibility to give away grace for free. How's that for a kickoff? <laughs> well, that was a great, great kickoff. And I'm going to come in with that because I saw you, that word grace is just so important. And I, I, I'd written down gift, which I guess is very similar to grace. And it's like where is the concept of where do we think our own money comes from if we have some? Um, do, we, do we deserve that money? Did I earn that money or is it privilege and luck? And, you know, where did I get my skill from to earn that money? Where did I get that job from? And if you start thinking that everything, you know, if you're thinking everything comes from God, it's not necessarily my money. And therefore me keeping my money is different to going, okay, maybe we should be sharing some money about. And do people deserve money less? because they don't happen to have some is, you know, that I, it was fascinating when Simon said that some people feel that it's not Christian <laughs> because, you know, some people don't deserve the money because they didn't work hard enough. Um, and I think Fifi put something in the chat, but I didn't quite get to read it yet about that. And I just, I just think that's completely different to how I see it because just because people work hard doesn't mean well, just because you, oh, I'm getting confused here because like, my brain is so full of thoughts. I just think it's quite strange that people would say it's not Christian to want people to have something. I'm going to stop there. I'm rambling. <laughs> <laughs> I think some of the background from that is the contrast between the Methodists who effectively founded the Labour Party and the Church of England, which used to be um, the Tories at prayer. And there is that contrast going on about Christian ethics that I think comes from that conflict. I was thinking about um, how I can relate more to this because I agree with what you guys have said and what was put in the chat. I think it just makes sense to help everyone have a decent basis to you know, go from. Um, but I've never been in a place where I need a food bank. Um, on the other hand, I have been in a place where I was living with my parents 
And my mom was that kind of person who, well, was very strict and frugal and you all need, needed the essentials. Um, which for a teenage girl trying to go to a school prom without, you know, school formal, without a proper dress was just, that was for me, you know, um, the moment where having an extra allowance because our Romanian state gave, a, gave an extra allowance for kids and being a good student and getting an extra allowance for that kind of allowed me to feel the same as my other colleagues, you know? <laughs> But I didn't earn any of that. I wasn't a hardworking student. I was just a student who got maths and all the other subjects. It's just my brain fits in the system that we've built. But most, many of my colleagues didn't fit in that system and they got nothing. So, yeah. There are a couple of things, um, Andrea and Helen said that, that resonate with me as well, that I know personally, I just happened to fit into the pattern of school and university and things that sort of was the typical recommended path at the time. And I was then able to get a job and so on and, and move on and so I have what I have because I fitted. And also on timing, I got my first proper job in 2007, the year before the crash. And then since then, there have been two financial calamities that anyone in a similar situation, a bit younger than me, it's not because they're any different or because I'm better or special. And it does, it does change your view, what well, should change your view, I think, of how you view what you have and how tightly you hold it, whether you consider it yours. Yeah. Um, can, I, can I go in a slightly different direction? Um, of course. We keep, there's this sort of fixed sized pie idea that goes out that if you give somebody something, it detracts from what you've got. And I think, you know, the, the obesity question keeps coming up and they sort of say, and one of the solutions to that is to bring back rationing. Now that has serious implications because it takes away from the rich. They can't buy anything more unless they go to the black market, which they will. Um, and gives to the poor because they get the same amount of ration. Um, so we could explore that direction a little bit. How much do we have to uh, remove from the rich in terms of taxation and such like to actually finance what we give to the poor? And there's also, is that a problem for the individual? Is that a problem for the government? Is that a problem for voting? Might want to go down that route. Indeed, this, this raises uh, enormous political and economic questions. Um, I think for the time that we have today, um, uh, it would be interesting whether anyone has any thoughts in terms of the church, um, what this might mean for, for a congregation like Bloomsbury. Well, I certainly think uh, Fifi's observation is extraordinary and, and um, uh, poignant and very apposite here when she says, why are we worrying about those having nothing getting something when that something is keeping them living? 
it seems to be, I mean, such a universal premise and something that we ought to really honour and, and glow, really, with respect. I mean, it seems to me with wealth, I mean, there are three quick observations. One, people who see it as an offence to Christian faith and our churches. Um, those somewhere in the middle who see it as an obstacle or a hindrance to the Christian faith. And those, um, as Simon mentioned before, um, the prosperity gospelers in America um, who see um, wealth as an outcome of faith. Um, Jeff also mentioned Wesley and the Wesleyan tradition. And John Wesley, if I understand it correctly, had quite a few fairly right-wing views on a lot of subjects. Um, but he did say, and I always remember this from him, um, one of the chief tenets of his preaching, he says, gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. And I'm wondering sometimes where this comes, you know, are we looking more towards benevolent capital capitalism, changing around the perimeters, around the edges, because it, it's the world turned upside down that we're talking about, I think. And um, I enjoy reading a lot of um, history and so forth. And it's been interesting how a lot of these ideas have been tried experimentally, we haven't got very far. In the 17th century, we had the level, levelers, the true levelers, the diggers, Lilburn, Winstanley, I don't know if these names are um, popular today to people. There was a film made on uh, uh, Gerard Winstanley, the leveller. And they all start, and they're wonderful. We even had them in the Baptist church um, in um, Bugbrook, um, Northamptonshire. There have been television programmes on the Jesus Army. All of these have fizzled out for various reasons. Um, so should we be starting? Is this a ground um, level approach to something? Or we need, do we need to be looking at the edges of capitalism and trying to um, influence things around the edges? Um, last thing, a, um, a quote from um, Archbishop of Constantinople in the fifth century, um, Chrysostom. He said, those I accuse are not the rich, but the rapacious and wealthy. Um, he says, yes, wealth is one thing, covetousness another, learn to distinguish. Yeah. <laughs> Does anyone on the panel have any any final thoughts, either responses to what people have said or any um, further chats, uh, comments in the chat? Okay. Um, I think my, my final reflection would be that whilst these issues do touch on politics and economics uh, for a country as a whole, and whilst they can be taken on board by congregations and church groups to affect the way that they work, it is all most importantly about us at an individual level. And I hope that we continue to reflect on what we've heard today and <clears throat> that 
uh, we, we listen further to what Simon has to say on, on related issues in the next few weeks. Um, okay, well, thank you very much, everyone. Um, excuse me. Let us pray. Gracious God of all good gifts, we come before you this morning with the weight of the world in our hearts and with hands empty of solutions. We cannot even solve all the problems of our own lives, let alone those facing others. And we recognise that there is nothing we can put in with a guarantee of return. The world is beyond our control. Neither can we direct you to attend our needs and concerns. There is no formula of prayer that will unlock the gates of heaven to resolve injustice and vindicate the righteous. And yet, still we come in prayer. And we bring before you the needs of the world and the concerns of our hearts, because we have faith that you are love and that you graciously hear us and that you meet us and our world in all our powerlessness to redeem the past and open the door to an alternative future. We live in uncertain times and there are many voices claiming they know what the right thing to do is and so we pray for our leaders. Many promises have been made in recent times and more will be made in the coming weeks and months. We hear over and over again the transactional promise that if you vote for me, I'll give you what you want. Help us not to buy into ideologies of giving to receive. And may our politicians of whatever political persuasion rediscover the integrity of leadership that is needed to govern fairly and for the common good. We lift our voices as a congregation against poverty and racism and sexism and class war and homophobia. We commit ourselves to the creation of communities where people are welcomed and valued as individuals rather than as commodities to be traded or manipulated. So we pray for refugees and asylum seekers. The statistics speak of the scale of the problem, but they belie the truth of fathers and mothers and sons and daughters living lives of uncertainty in camps on our borders, struggling to exist as invisible segments in our own society. We pray for those waiting the processing of asylum claims, and we pray for those who cannot see a hopeful future for themselves and their families. We lift our voices against exclusion, protectionism and selfish politics, and we commit ourselves to the creation of hospitable communities of welcome, where statistics become people and people become friends. May we be open to creating a world where others are granted opportunities of grace to receive freely from you the redemption of the past and hope for the future. And so we turn our prayers to the deep systems of transaction that underlie the inequality of our world. We name the economic injustices that create and perpetuate an imbalance of living on both local and global scales. We pray for those entrusted with the handling of money, for bankers and policymakers, for financiers and taxation experts. And we lift our voices against injustice, 
poverty and extortion. We commit ourselves to the creation of communities of equality where money is held lightly and the economics of your coming kingdom are made real in our midst as we reject any notions of giving to receive. Instead, embracing your invitation to give with no expectation of reward. Gracious God of all good gifts, we come before you with open hands and we offer to you the gift of our lives. We do this because in faith we believe that you reach out to us in love to redeem the past and open the door to a hopeful future. Amen. <laughs>